Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I imagine that most of you have probably experienced a significant windstorm at one time or another in your life, if not many times. Some of you have even experienced tropical storms and hurricanes. Some have even seen tornadoes, or at least the aftermath of tornadoes. But even if you were not the eyewitness to a particular windstorm, you can often still tell that it has occurred. Walk around after those high winds and you'll usually see plenty of evidence. Broken twigs and branches, large and small, scattered around. And about all those twigs and those branches seem to be useful for at that point is to be thrown into the dumpster or perhaps gathered and collected as kindling wood for a fire. Branches that are broken off from their plants are usually pretty useless. But not all broken branches are useless. Sometimes branches and shoots from one plant can be grafted onto another plant. The fusion of two plants together can oftentimes produce some very interesting results. For example, it can produce hybrid flowers. It can produce more consistent fruit on a tree that might be hardy as a trunk, but not necessarily have a high yield of crops. And the practice of grafting has even become so advanced now that some gardeners are able to produce potatoes and tomatoes on the same plant. Just because a shoot or a branch has been removed from its original plant does not mean that it is completely useless. Grafting them onto a new host plant can make them very useful indeed. The Bible uses the illustration of grafting to describe how some believers have been brought into God's family. In the early church, Jewish Christians were thought to be already connected to Jesus by way of the promises that God had given to their forefathers promises that all pointed forward toward Jesus. But God never intended that His church only consist of Jewish believers, those who were part of the family by virtue of their status as His chosen people. No, God wanted to graft people of all nations into His family. And almost all of us here today are examples of that, aren't we? And so is the man that we hear about in the first lesson today. The Holy Spirit directed Philip to give witness about Jesus Christ to an Ethiopian government official who was traveling from Jerusalem. In the process of that conversation, this man was changed from a spiritual broken branch to a branch that was newly grafted into Jesus, the vine. And as we think about what this incident meant for this particular man, we can't help but think about the way God brings us and keeps us in His kingdom too. And so we ought to be thankful and continually pray, Lord, graft us to the vine. Teach us by Your Word. Wash us with Your baptism. Now there are two main characters, real people to be sure, that we need to get to know from this first lesson. The first one is Philip. He was one of the deacons that had been called to serve in the early church in the book of Acts in chapter 6 so that the apostles could focus primarily on the proclamation of the gospel. 
Now, Philip had been up in the region of Samaria, and the Lord had greatly blessed his evangelism there. And then in our reading, God sent Philip from Samaria to a remote location to witness to one lone soul traveling along a desert road back to his homeland. Now, this one lone soul is not specifically named in our reading. We learn, though, that he is a very high-ranking government official from Ethiopia, an ancient nation along the upper Nile River. It was sometimes known as Nubia in, Old Te- in New Testament times. Now, because faithful people from all over the ancient world often came to Jerusalem to worship, this man had made a pilgrimage to the holy city, and he is now on his way home. The Holy Spirit directed Philip to greet this man's official chariot. And Philip catches up to this chariot, and he hears the man reading from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, to be exact. Now, it was fairly common at at that time for a person to read aloud, even when he was reading alone. So Philip could hear and he could know what portion of the Scripture the man was reading. We're told Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the official was not only reading from the prophet Isaiah, but he was reading from a very important section of Isaiah, a very famous section, chapter 53, a part that predicted the suffering and death of the Messiah hundreds of years before it actually occurred. But without the knowledge that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, those words from Isaiah's book remained a mystery to this man. Now, this official may have previously asked others, perhaps some rabbis along his route, or perhaps even some temple officials in Jerusalem, what this section meant. But those who remained blind and resistant to the fulfillment of the prophecy by Jesus certainly would not have offered that particular interpretation. Clearly, though, the man is searching for answers because when he asked Philip what these verses meant, he even proposed two options himself to their interpretation. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? This official may not have known who Isaiah was writing about, but Philip knew that he had just been handed a golden opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ. And if you're going to use the Old Testament to talk about Jesus, there's hardly a better starting point than chapter 53 of Isaiah. And so that is where Philip started. We are told Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As the account in Acts continues, we see that the Holy Spirit used Philip's witness to graft this man, to graft this new believer into the family tree of God into the vine of Jesus. Now the Bible was a closed book to this man until Philip opened it by explaining Jesus Christ and His redeeming work. And things are not any different for us today. The Bible is a closed book to all those, to everyone, unless its meaning is understood through a proper understanding of Jesus. After all, without understanding Christ, what else is the Bible? Just a handbook for morality? A guide for social justice? A collection of 
wise religious literature from the ancient world, the biased history of Hebrews. No, Christ working through the Holy Spirit is the only key that opens the Scriptures to us. Christ opens the Bible so that the Holy Spirit can teach us by the Word and graft us into Christ the vine. When we understand that Christ is our eternal God and our gracious Savior, then everything else falls into place. With the proper understanding of Christ in the Scriptures, we begin to see how the Old Testament worship ceremonies were visual object lessons, prefiguring Jesus' saving work. We can see how prophets like Isaiah painted beautiful portraits of the forgiveness of sins that is ours in Christ. We can see how the apostles like John and Paul and Peter point back to the significance of Christ's work in their New Testament letters. And we can understand and we can appreciate how and why the Gospels point us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I think most of us understand that, at least on the surface. I think we all know that the Scriptures are about Christ from cover to cover, even if we don't contemplate it every single day. But then I wonder. I wonder whether we recognize this as just being head knowledge, some sort of an intellectual understanding, while our sinful hearts try to keep the core of our being at some distance from these truths. We do know that Christ is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. But then, what does that say about you and about me who are part of the world? Doesn't it say that each and every one of us is a sinful and damnable person before God? Doesn't that truth reveal that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross? And doesn't that truth point out that God would have every right to make us face an eternal lifetime's worth of punishment, His wrath against sin? Ah, but who wants to acknowledge that? And so we often tune out when the law's preaching makes us uncomfortable and we wait for the preacher to get to the Gospel because he always does. Or that's when we pull out our weekly word and scan through the announcements because they are so much less threatening and more, less uncomfortable than the Word of God. Or we find some other way to distance ourselves from the harsh reality that our sin has put us on a beeline course to hell. Who really, who really wants to acknowledge the sinless Lamb of God was sacrificed for my sin? Who wants to confess Jesus was deprived of justice because of me? No, we may not want to hear the harsh reality of our sin and God's judgment, but the Holy Spirit wants us to hear that message. We need to hear it so that it drives us to repentance, leads us back to Christ, and then the Spirit can teach us by the Word. For the Word of God not only teaches our inherent depravity, but after it has done that, it teaches us about the one who took up our depravity and placed it upon himself, who carried it to the cross, who killed it there and buried it in his tomb. The Word teaches us that Christ's holiness was lived for us and that by faith in him, it counts for us. St. Paul wrote the following to the Romans, but now a righteous, righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The Word also teaches us about Christ's sacrifice as our substitute. He threw Himself in front of God's wrath for us with the words that Philip explained from Isaiah. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so He did not open His mouth. For He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of My people, He was stricken. And the Word further teaches us about Christ's victory over death, which now also counts for us, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All these messages from God's Word graft us to the vine, And so we pray, dear Holy Spirit, teach us by Your Word. Now we do not know the precise content of the instruction that Philip gave this Ethiopian official while they were traveling, but it must have been pretty thorough. Philip began with Isaiah in the Old Testament, as we know, but eventually he arrived at Jesus' final instructions to His disciples to teach and to baptize that which we know is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Now this had probably not yet been recorded in Matthew's Gospel account at this point, but from Philip's teaching, it did not take long for this official to put two and two together. He realized that baptism was God's gift to him personally, and he rightly desired that gift. We're told, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. And why shouldn't he have gone on his way rejoicing? The knowledge about Christ had opened the Scriptures to him. He had just been given eternal life in the waters of holy baptism. His sins had been washed away, and he had been grafted into the vine, adopted into God's family. Does the thought and the recollection of your baptism fill you with the same joy? Probably not as often as it should. It's not that we intentionally try to downgrade baptism's value, but the reality is for many of us, we don't really remember our baptism because we were only a few days or perhaps weeks old. But that doesn't make it any less a reality or any less of a gift. We must always remember that baptism is God's working of faith in us. It is not our witness to faith in God. Perhaps today we can renew our appreciation of our own baptism by looking upon the joy that this new believer who was taught by Philip had when he received baptism and all of its blessings. Far from being just a church ceremony or a christening, not being just a tradition or a magic protective blanket around you, baptism is your adoption into God's family. It is your personal connection to Christ, into His death and into His resurrection your individual promise of eternal life, and your direct power source 
to live for the One who lived and died and rose again for you. The Blessed Sacrament grafts us into this vine. And so we also pray, dear Holy Spirit, wash us with your baptism. Taught by the Word then and washed by the water, adopted into the family and grafted into the vine, we join with Philip and with the Ethiopian and with all the saints and angels and archangels around the throne of God. We gather around the Lord's table to receive the saving fruit of the vine, Jesus Christ, in His body and in His blood. In His holy name, Amen.